So y'all know I that this is at the moment the the cat house. We have three. We have a dog too, but uh, we got a lot of cats. I've never imagined I would end up with three cats, and that was kind of um, not not. Um, so two of our cats are rapidly aging. One, I'll just give you an update on because I did talk about her not so long ago. Anna, who's almost 18 and was having bloody stools and not eating, gotten to the place that um, she was kind of our skeletal cat. She got so skinny. Uh, so, you know, talking to the vets, we were basically hospice care. And then something changed. She started eating, her stools cleared up. She's doing a lot better, <laughs> go figure. Um, she's still tired, but, and, and doesn't feel good in general, I don't think, but there's a way she still actively appreciates things. That's just really kind of beautiful to be with. Um, she stopped grooming herself. So now I have to like demat her. I have to do the grooming for her. Uh, and it's not really that she likes me grooming her so much, but you can tell she appreciates and she knows that I'm doing this for her, for her well-being. Um, uh, she has this way of just luxuriating in a patch of sunshine on the porch for a nap. Uh, or going into like heavy, heavy purring when I pet her while she eats. Um, and to see her not feeling great, but having a kind of um, practical grace with changes. It's a, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful lesson. In, in letting go um, with practical grace. And now our second oldest cat, um, Sage, she's 12, she had bad arthritis, not younger, but having problems a lot earlier. And Thursday, just like boom, she went blind, just boom, out of the, out of the blues, um, completely, suddenly, completely blind. Uh, went to the vet today. It's probably undiagnosed hypertension that that this happens in cats like this. And what's interesting with her is to see how little changed for her otherwise. No drama around it at all. Um, no stage of shock. Um, um, no, none of the human stories of what's wrong with me, what did I do wrong that something is going bad in my body. Um, and I can tell you absolutely when I got diagnosed with breast cancer, you know, the first, the first thing that happened was, was this shock. And the second thing that I needed to deal with was guilt of, you know, what did I do wrong? It's kind of sweet to see her going from seen to blind. And that's the whole story. She's just moseying around the house, figuring it out in a different way and content and happy, just like every other, every other day, every other moment, um, just not seeing. I don't share this to say that 
this is the way we should be. We should be like my cats, <laughs> just like have some major loss of blindness and, and be able to navigate it like, oh yeah, today I went blind and that's the end of that. Um, we live far more complex lives and have far deeper entanglements and things um, that we have to deal with. Uh, so what comes up for us is different when, when there are difficult things that happen, that we need to know how to meet with wisdom and kindness, not just push it to the side in, in this ideal of being some sort of spiritual being who doesn't get ruffled um, by something like this. That said, I do name it to just name the beauty of witnessing a very natural, very quiet, letting go and moving on in the midst of challenge. We share a lot of nervous system wiring with our animals, um, more so with our dogs than with our cats, but, but that basic, um, uh, a lot of the basic um, survival wiring and all of that is, is just the shared system. So to see this possibility, even in the midst of challenge, to be open to what's good, to be able to kiss the joy as it flies, as William Blake said, even when things are hard, are challenging. That's an art. That's a gift um, that really offers a different kind of sustenance and nourishment to our day-to-day -day world, right in the middle of the difficult, if we can practice it. And this possibility of being able to kiss the joy in the middle of the challenge to find that patch of sunshine that feels good to take a nap in, to be able to appreciate that the daughter on the way out the door to her EMS night pulled out her stethoscope and checked my whole chest for heart and lungs to tell me if I was going to be okay for the night. <laughs> Um, you know, to get to find those, those little grace moments in the midst of our life, that's, that's a gift. And it's not easy because of, I'm sure you, all of y'all know this term, because of our hard, hardcore negativity bias that's wired into our systems. So um, because of our survival wiring, we have this inborn negativity bias. We actually know an awful lot about it now through neuroscience studies. And the reality is it is a very important survival trait that keeps us from overlooking what it might be dangerous to us in a given moment in the midst of trying to open to joy. Keeps us wise um, this is the wiring that protected our ancestors who may have been looking for a nice place to sit and enjoy the sunshine um, and, and were able to see, oh yeah, that's a snake right by that log and I'm not going to sit right there um, to be attuned and watch, and watch for those things. 
there's nothing wrong with this bias and with this wiring. It has been useful evolutionarily for um, uh, eons, but it does get out of balance and it can overwhelm us very easily when we are in confusing times. Our nervous systems did not evolve with modern culture, society in mind, and didn't evolve with this being blasted by bad news constantly and, and um, how to stay in balance in that, that framework, that world. Um, so, you know, it's not very surprising that it gets really out of balance. And when the negativity bias gets really out of balance, you know, of course, there is an increase in anxiety, depression, fear, worry, dread, overwhelm. You know, I mean, all of those things all the time. And what even makes it worse, when we kind of give in to the cycle of the negativity, it just gets stronger. That's the way, that's kind of what Cooper was naming about how habits, you have to entrain the mind um, to develop a new way of being and thinking. So we really have to retrain ourselves um, to take in the good. Uh, uh, and I like the way Rick Hansen like names that as um, a, a fundamental practice. Um, know how to work with our challenges as appropriate, but not let the challenges flood us and overwhelm us and blind us to what is good. Kind of like my cat. She's very aware. She's like in this beautiful balance with this. She's very aware of her new situation. You can, you can see her like, like purposefully learning the house in a different way. Um, and paying attention, but it didn't. She never. She didn't miss a step in what she enjoys. Didn't miss a step. Didn't miss a meal. Didn't miss a hug. Didn't miss a petting. You know, just just what was what what was still good. She was still totally available for, even as she was working straight up is still working straight up with the new challenge. That's kind of beautiful to be wide open to what still feels good in the midst of difficulty. And then not just what feels good, but um, um, growing that making that connection to taking in the good stronger. So, you know, when I look at Sage going around the house, I feel like she's demonstrating an amygdala with its survival needs in harmony with the rest of her brain and her life. Um, and it's a lot easier to find that when you're a cat than when you're, than when you're living um, these vastly more complicated lives that we do. But it's not impossible. Uh, and to me, this is the basic promise of mindfulness practice. And for me, this basic promise of the whole of spiritual life, that there is a way of being grounded that matters, that brings a sense of well-being 
right in the heart of the difficult, even the most difficult. So I want to share um, a little bit of what Rick Hansen says about this. Um, this is from the article that I put in the email. Um, I don't, I don't actually agree entirely with the way he reads the, the development of the negativity bias. Um, um, a lot of people give this, this vision that our ancestors were on high alert all the time. They weren't. They, I mean, they just weren't. <laughs> they were much more like, our, like my cat, that they had it in balance and harmony. Um, but I still really, really like his article. So here's one of the things that he says. Here's part of what he says in it. You don't have to accept this bias. By tilting toward the good, good in the practical sense of that which brings more happiness to oneself and more helpfulness to others, you merely level the playing field. You'll still see the tough parts of life. In fact, you'll become more able to change them or bear them if you tilt towards the good, since that helps put challenges in perspective, lifts your energy and spirits, highlights useful resources, fills up your own cup so you have more to offer others. And now tilting towards absorbing the good. Instead of our positive experiences just washing through us like water through a sieve, they begin to collect in our implicit memory deep down in the brain. And this is Cooper just kind of like named the heart of this whole thing and those habits. Um, our habits are feeding the implicit memory either towards the direction of the negativity or towards the direction of this taking in the good that he's talking about. In the famous saying, neurons that fire together, wire together. The more you get your neurons firing about positive facts in your life, the more they wire up positive neurostructures supporting the brain. Taking in the good is a brain science savvy, psychologically skillful way on how to improve how you feel, get things done, treat others. It is among the top five personal growth methods I know. In addition to being good for adults, it's great for kids, helping them to become more resilient, confident, and happy. So he has very deliberate practices um, for taking in the good, and we'll talk about those next week. But I want to do, I want to end um, with a practice, and we won't go um, through the whole alphabet. But a practice I've shared here um, several times, it's one of my favorite practices for taking in the good. This is the ABC Gratitudes, uh, which you may or may not have done with me before. I got this from Brother David Stendhal Rost, and his way of doing it is, you think of the letter A, the first word that pops to your mind um, with the letter A, acorn. You think of something about an acorn that you are grateful for. I change it up just a little bit. I think of the letter A and I feel into my body, mind, heart, this present moment right where I am. And I notice one thing that starts with the letter A that's present right now. And I name that. And then I take a moment, and this is very Rick Hansen style, take a moment to feel into that thing. So like the letter A, air. 
Take a moment to just feel into, is there any air movement? Can you feel the air moving in and out of the lungs? Gratitude for this connection, for this air, this sustained life. What's that like for you? So what I'm gonna invite us to do is everyone can unmute yourself and we'll just um, do this together for a few of the letters. We'll see how far we go. And when somebody names something, give a little space before you name something too so that we can take a pause and feel into whatever has been named. And see if you can name something that's present in your your current environment. So, A, 